Last week, we had just an incredible interview with one of the best public speakers in the nation. This week, we dive into setting goals and dreaming big with a real estate agent who powered through the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008. After over a decade of nonprofit leadership impacting thousands, we hit a wall. We started asking ourselves, how can we go beyond personal success and leave a legacy that lasts far beyond our lifetimes? A job change and a couple pivots into for-profit leadership later? We're on the search to get that question answered. If you're a leader who cares deeply about supporting nonprofits from the inside or from the outside, this podcast is for you. We believe that the world needs what you are going to leave behind, and it's our passion to help you find that thing and build it. I'm Ted. And I'm Lisa. Welcome to the Legacy Builders Movement. All right, welcome back to our podcast. We're so glad that you're here. And you guys, we have someone super exciting back today. It is Lori Millam from Millam Real Estate Group. You know, from last time, Lori has been in the real estate business for 23 years. She's an investor, um, both in real estate and in some other businesses. She has multiple streams of income. She's a firm believer in multiple streams of income. Um, And, you know, I know today we're going to get talking about residual income a little bit too, which is super awesome because if you've ever thought, you know, real estate is all about like just the transactions, I'm constantly trying to do it. Lori's found a way to bring this into residual. So she is an incredible person to talk to. Lori, thank you so much for being back on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I am truly honored to be here. Oh, we're so excited for you. Oh my gosh. I'm just so happy that you're here right now. Um, I don't know if y'all can hear it in my voice. Uh, Lori, could you start by telling our listeners a bit about your backstory? Absolutely. Um, As you said, uh, 23 years I've been licensed. I actually got licensed in Texas to begin with. Uh, I grew up in real estate. My mom was a realtor. And um, so I kind of caught that bug early on. Uh, When I got licensed in in Texas, I did um, executive apartment relocation. And all that means in layman's terms is that I used to help people find apartments. Um, Mind you, this was the late 90s, back before internet was even a big thing. And so uh, it was difficult for people, you know, they were out pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, trying to find an apartment. And that that was my field. Hmm. When I moved to Minnesota. I moved to a very rural area, uh, population just over 2,000, one stoplight. And as you can imagine, (laughs) there wasn't a huge demand for an executive apartment relocation. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided to get my license uh, in Minnesota and I got my appraiser's license at the same time and kind of just had the mindset of wherever the wind takes me. Um, And I did do the appraisals for a couple of years, but um, the real estate is really what what led me and it is just what I loved and uh, fell in love with selling houses and helping families and um, just really, it was fun to help people with that next step because it usually was a positive step, something that they were dreaming about. Um, so that's that's kind of how I landed here. And I've been with uh, Keller Williams Realty now, which is the largest um, real estate company in the United States. I have been with them now since 2007 and um, just love it here. Absolutely love it. So this is going to be maybe an interesting question, but I'm going to dive into this. So you've been doing real estate long enough to have been through the great real estate like crash that happened. And we have a lot of conversations with people who are like, yeah, I was in real estate and this crash happened. And now I do something totally different. So like, how did you navigate that? 
because uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because we talk about building legacies here all the time, and they have to be able to stand the test of time. If we're going to build something that lasts three, four, five generations or more, there are going to be recessions. There are going to be things that come up against that legacy, whether it's financial, philosophical, or a family legacy. So how did you navigate through that? And maybe we can figure out some ways to apply that to building a legacy. Yeah. Uh, again, great questions. Um, for me, I was just tenacious. Um, I kind of, you know, when I was in Texas, the reason I didn't sell houses in Texas is because I had heard how cutthroat it was between agent to agent going after. And I just heard that it was um, kind of a nightmare. Like you were just, you had to really be ready to fight. And so that's why I went into the apartment and, you know, that whole world. When I moved to Minnesota, I told my husband, I said, bear with me. It's going to take me probably two years to just get my foundation, my feet under me. Well, it did not. I, it took off right away. And I literally was in an office again in a small town. There were three agents and I would just show up every single day at the beginning of the day and people would be like the real estate was crazy right then and we would get referrals coming up from a city only 15 20 minutes away and they'd be like it was too far away and i'd be like i'll do it i'll do it i'll go show them i don't care i'll do it i'll take it and i didn't know that that wasn't normal i mm. would go out and i'd write up four purchase agreements in a weekend and think well i thought all the realtors would do that you know i <laughs> every single day and and I took anything and everything. And for me, also looking at the writing on the wall, I started doing these price opinions for banks and I, four years I was doing things along that lines. And so when the industry sort of fell apart and you are absolutely correct, there were agents out there that were full-time agents and then the next day they were a bartender um, because they just could not sustain with the foreclosure. I actually uh, rose to that occasion and we got in directly with like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and I went to um, foreclosure conventions and I just latched onto that. And so we were rocking and rolling. I was known kind of as the foreclosure queen for about eight years and wow. uh, almost, gosh, just almost guilty about it because properties were just falling in our lap. But you know, looking back, I worked for that, you know, so we worked um, really, really hard and, and just wanted to be the best at anything that we did. I wanted to be the best at it so that we were last man standing. It's true. I mean, you know, and, and I hear this. I mean, we haven't been in business long enough to like see crazy recessions or anything like that. But we, we we've heard from lots of people that like if you if you can figure out how to ride through and even grow through uh a recession or, you know, even like a depression or something like that, you're going to be not just the, like, you're going to be the, you're going to be the name in that industry. It's like the biggest companies that we've heard of are the ones that rode through the great depression that rode through all, uh, you know, the wars and different things like that. Those are the ones that we all know, like Procter and Gamble and Ford and, you know, all these companies have been around forever um, because they built up the ability not only to rise above every everyone else who is just calling it quits and throwing in the towel, but then they found out how to weather these storms. And it's kind of like, if you can make it through that recession that happened, that was crazy. Like, it's almost like, all right, when when's the next one? We'll just do, you know, we'll do what we did last time. We'll just figure out a way to get through it. 
Yeah. When that started hitting, at what point did you realize I need to pivot? Were you paying attention to people early on saying things are changing, something's around the corner, and then starting to get into that? Or was it you just kind of built up a few uh, connections early on, just happened to be able to use them? Like, yeah, uh, I, I would get kind of angry when I would find listings out there that I couldn't figure out how agents were the go to agent. So I took time, you know, in, in real estate, you hear lead generation all the time. You hear, you know, got to pick up the phone, make phone calls, make connections. For me, my lead generation was all about getting on the radar of these banks and and these these agencies and just however I could be, you know, if they're round robining going through five different agents within a zip code, I wanted to be one of the five. And so I spent time every single week working on that. And I went to these conventions and, uh, you know, I, I just got in front of as many asset managers as I possibly could until they were like, fine, you are a go-to gal, you know? <laughs> Most agents, I mean, the, the National Association of Realtors, they, they post out all kinds of surveys and statistics and everything. And the average agent only sells about eight homes a year, believe it or not. That is part-timers all the way up to people doing huge volume. Well, at that point in time, we were getting about 12 new listings on average every single month. So because of that industry. So, I mean, it, it we really just flourished through all of that. And I hired ahead of time too, you know, so if, if they thought that there was a need for anything, I made sure we had a runner in place. I made sure, you know, we were never um, behind on anything. If we needed it, we just hired an extra person, you know, so we grew really, really fast during those couple of years uh, in order to be able to sustain that. I love that there are two different things that you said a little bit ago, you said that you chose, like, you didn't know what was normal. And so you would just go do it. You didn't know it wasn't normal to to write up four offers in a day. You didn't know it was it wasn't normal. And so you had almost an ignorance toward what was normal. But then at the same time, you choose to dig in and investigate what was working for other people. And I think a lot of people in life get it backwards. They say ignorance to what's working. And then they investigate what's normal so that they can set their goals accordingly. Whoa. And so it's really interesting because you're like, yeah, I didn't really know what was normal. I just went and hit the pavement and did the work and did the things. And I just kind of ignored everything else. And I found out, whoa, I'm succeeding. Apparently, this isn't normal. And at the same time, you were tenacious to go out and say, but something's working for other agents. I'm going to go ahead and do that. And I think one of the downfalls of people is to stay ignorant about the wrong things. But ignorance sometimes is a blessing when you choose to be ignorant to what other people think you're capable of. Or ignorant to what other people might think about you or ignorant to what other people might say about you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Selective ignorance. (laughs) Selective ignorance. (laughs) I I definitely feel like you have to be willing to kind of go against the grain um, instead of with, you know, everything that's going on. You have to have that ability to have kind of a 10,000 foot view of what's going on and and gleam onto that and look for those clues because inevitably there's always some kind of writing on the wall, Mm. you know? Um, Yeah, it was, it was something else. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun during those eight or nine years for sure. Language. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say the 
what the besides the financial aspect of it and the money and and everything that completely set that aside the big thing that came out of that for me was the experience because what i learned very early on with these asset managers they didn't care what the problem was they only cared what the solution was and so if we ever had a problem we had to become solution oriented immediately. And so I never ever presented a problem without two or three different solutions, already having the quotes, already having the bids, already having contractors lined up, giving them a time timeline, you know, and that that is where that experience now helps me with all my current clients um, that I deal with today. Hmm. That is a big one. I remember I remember a conversation I had with uh, a boss of mine a, a few years back and we were trying to like solve some issues and, you know, she'd say like, what about this thing here? And I'd be, well, the problem with that is blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay, what about this thing here? Well, the problem with that is this thing here. And, and like, eventually she's just like, stop, stop, stop. You can't just keep telling me problems. Like we got to think solutions. And like that burned into my brain so much because it's true. Like, that's the value that we bring to other people is when we say like, hey, this is your this is a problem that maybe even you created, but this is a problem. I'm going to help you find a solution. And the person who finds the most solutions and helps the most people with their problems is the person who's going to end up rising above because most people are just trying to find alleviation from their problems. They don't want more stacked on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. that's really, really good. And I, I love too that like, this is language that's popped up in the last year or two with COVID and all that stuff, especially with businesses figuring out how to pivot. And so I don't know if you can think back to like that moment, because I'm guessing you had a little bit of a different strategy real estate wise before you started jumping into figuring out on the, the, the bank side. Like, what was that moment where you're like, whoa, we got to change our strategy here. And what did that look like? Or were you always working with all really heavily with the banks? No, we definitely were um, more on the people side, uh, but I loved working with the banks, um, which sounds really bizarre because, you, you know, <laughs> requisite to be a realtor um, has to be that you're extroverted and that you are a people, you know, you just love people. Well, I am kind of the opposite. I am very much more introverted. I am very analytical. And so for me doing the, um, like the price opinions for the banks and figuring out those solutions was a whole lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. Uh, on the flip side, that is also when I had um, started, I had two young ones, you know, right after all of this started and, uh, it allowed me that if I happen to be up at 2 a.m., which sounds insane now that I look back at it, but, you know, the babies dictated my time schedule more than anything. <laughs> and at least banks, I could do, I had to have reports that were just due by a certain date, you know, um, so it allowed me that opportunity. The whole pivoting part was simply figuring out how we stay ahead of them and be prepared so that when they said, hey, we want to give you this account where you're going to be getting properties, can you handle it? My answer was always, of course. <laughs> and then I would go figure it out. I'd panic and then I'd go figure it out, you know, so. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I can help you with that. And that's cool because you're looking at and you're projecting, you know, where things are changing a little bit. Let's figure out where the clientele is going to be coming from. You know, people aren't necessarily looking to buy a lot of houses right now. Well, wait, hold on. 
banks are are dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of that side right now. It just it's kind of fallen all in their lap. So we need to make sure that we're servicing them and solving their problems too. Yeah. That's really smart. I think uh, that's one of the challenges people have been figuring out and trying to navigate with COVID is who who has the problems in my industry? What are the situations they're finding themselves in? And how can I solve those people's problems? Mm-hmm. I agree. When And you don't want to feel like you're taking advantage, right? Mm-hmm. But when there are issues that come up, so when COVID hit, it, it, it was scary and we were deemed essential right away. So we were still out there. And I thought sure as anything that real estate was going to just fall flat. And it, it almost feels like the exact opposite happened. And I still don't really have an answer why. Um, but one thing that I thought of was who needs the help? And so for us, we started putting ads out and, and seeking and looking for referrals for maybe investors because you know there was all of this talk about renters you know if you think about a lot of the renters out there a lot of them are in these kind of industries that were hurt by COVID-19 and Mm -hmm. so then the trickle effect is who is that going to you know up the line who is that going to affect well these investors that own all these houses Mm. what happens when they have you know they maybe have 15 20 houses and what happens if five of them you know, are affected because now their renters can't pay. Well, that's huge, you know. And so then our target became, gosh, I'm sure a lot of investors are going to want to start dumping properties right now. And um, there's a lot of people working from home now that have decided, I don't need to live in Minnesota anymore. Now this is going to be a permanent thing. So we've had sellers already um, sell and move to Iowa or move, you know, wherever to be closer back to family because now they can do that and still work from home because that's the new the new norm. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. You know, now that you kind of mentioned investors, I want to segue a little bit. Um, what we've talked about with real estate, with working with banks and working with buyers and sellers, that's all very much, you know, you go out, do the transaction, get paid. But I know along with that, you care a lot about having multiple streams of income and then the residual side of it. Um, at what point in your career did that start becoming more of a priority for you? And then what were your first couple steps to move that direction? Yeah, um, about six or seven years ago, I became a part of a networking, an agent networking group that um, if you can only imagine the Twin Cities and then, you know, kind of imagine the outskirts of the Twin Cities, different corners. Well, there was a group that I got associated with. There was an agent kind of in, in all the corners of the, you know, six or seven of us. And that we not only referred back and forth, but um, we're like mentors and we would meet once a month and kind of share problems and things like that. And um, the very first time I met with this group, uh, I sat down and there was a gentleman there who took a napkin out at lunch. And if you could envision drawing a rectangle and then turning that into like six little squares, you know, drawing a line through it and then two more lines up and down, like six little squares. And he said, this is the key to success. And I said, a napkin? Like, show me. (laughs) Show me the money. You know, what, what is your like this? this moment, you know, and he just said, that's it, six boxes. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, if you can find a way to fill all six of these boxes with some kind of income stream, you're going to be successful. And I thought, huh, okay, 
you know, and so I, you know, and he drew out an example, even throwing out, well, social security is going to be one. It may not be a big one, you know, but like that there's one, maybe you have IRAs. That's another one, rental properties, or with Keller Williams, we get profit share, which is another residual income stream, you know? So if you can find a way to fill in these six boxes, um, some of them are going to pay more, some of them are going to pay less, but you're going to have multiple sources. Um, and that stuck with me. And I think that came out of Robert Kiyosaki. Um, I love books and reading and all of that, but that stuck with me. And it's like, that was just a light bulb moment for me to figure, figure out what's next with that. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that specifically because about a year ago, uh, Lisa mentioned a conversation she had with you where you, you told her that. And that has been very much how we think about everything now. So thank you for sharing that with her because every day we're always okay. What are our six? What are our six? Okay. We're working on these three, these four. Okay. What's our fifth one? You know, so that way we we're, we're having that mindset and we're seeing it pay off already big time. And you had mentioned something like just work on trying to get in one of those boxes up to 500, just try to get $500 a month. And just see what you can do to turn these different. In. And I love that because it's kind of like diversifying your portfolio, right? Like if one of the things takes a dip or whatever, you still got five others backing you up. It's a it's a really smart way to to do it. Yeah, and it made it so. <coughs> I think one of the things that stops people from jumping in is they think, well, to have residual income, I have to start with five million dollars, or to have residual income, I need to have two hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to go buy a house, like. But to break it down into, you just need six streams of income. We're like, okay, we can do that. Get each one to $500. Okay, we can do that. And now our goal, as we have five, like the different streams of income, and we're starting to get them up to where we want. Some are bigger, some are smaller, like you said. Our next goal is to turn all six of them into six passive streams of income. So then we're going to end up with more than six. But then, you know, figuring out how can we turn this from trading our time for money to just knowing, like you said, in January, you can just wake up and know, here's how much money I'm going to make this year guaranteed. And I just get to make more than that at this point. So yeah, that's super awesome advice. And you told me that about a year ago, and it has changed the way that we <laughs> set goals and deal with our finances. So thank you. Yeah, um, it's exciting. The whole, you know, when you, I, I get very passionate about the residual side of things. And and the real estate, it sounds so bizarre to think that, you know, there most investors out there that do buy rental properties and whatnot, um, and it sounds so minimal, but a lot of them are happy with two or $300 from a property in cash flow um, because they're looking at the other advantages of somebody else paying off that mortgage. You know, they're getting tax advantages, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so it it sounds like this huge risk. It's really, it's, it's just, it's real estate. I, I'm a big believer in investing in what you know. You know, if you don't understand something, um, it really, you just need to understand it um, to, to feel good about what you're doing. No, I think that that's super smart because um, people might see somebody succeeding in one area of like, oh my gosh, my friend like is making all this money in the stock market. Well, your friend has probably been studying the stock market a lot longer than you have so it's it's really essential that either you really really know it well or you you know it at least well enough to be able to find great advisors that can help you with that too because that's that's a really big deal as well like 
I mean, you're you're one of our resources when it comes to real estate. Like we we ask you questions because you nerd out so much about real estate <laughs> that it's like this is our benefit, right? And so it's so important for all of our listeners, depending on you know what you're wanting to invest in, even if it's not a financial thing. Like having the right advisors around you. We talk about this all the time, but develop your education enough in that area to be able to find a good advisor because that's you don't you don't want to just go blindly in and then end up with a bad advisor either because they're out there they do exist (laughs) you want to avoid those the finding the right advisors and mentors is huge um right now so kind of looking at i don't know if you want to look at your business as a whole or your life or whatever but what is like one of the biggest areas that you're trying to that you're actively working on growing right now Hmm. Actively growing. Uh, just the rentals. Um, we have a goal of having 20 doors. And um, so that might mean a duplex would be two doors, basically. Uh, I've just had this goal in the back of my mind to us that feels like a freedom number, you know, um, beyond, beyond anything. Um, so that is one of our goals. Uh, my husband and I were just talking about this last night, you know, just identifying. And in fact, we're going to go look at a property tonight. Um, identifying, figuring out and identifying maybe two new properties that we want to look at and, and just what, how we would structure that. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love, I love that idea of just like doors, making it tangible. Cause like you say properties or whatever. Right. But as soon as you put like doors on it, it makes it more visual in your mind. Like you can, I don't know. I, that was really cool. Well, I also like that you called it a freedom number. Like yes. how inspiring is that? Like listeners, what's your freedom number? Like what, how, what mm. do you actually need to have that moment of you feel freedom? And then how can that translate into a stream of income or with real estate, a certain number of doors or something it feels so tangible and also hope filled that I'm definitely going to steal that language from you. So <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to figure out our freedom. We have a lot of like freedom ideas, right? And I think people have a lot of freedom amorphous blobs. But you can turn if you can bring it into a, a solid number that you can just say that this is it. This is the one. That's I love that. That is really, really good. Because again, we talk about being ignorant about the right things and the wrong things. Um, it's one way to take the ignorance out of your personal f- freedom is to actually make it tangible. Otherwise, you just kind of live in this ignorant state about it. Like, well, at some point, someday, mm-hmm. we'll have enough whatever to be yeah. able to do whatever. So I have a couple of questions I want to wrap up with quick. Um, the first is we have people who are you know, working in the for-profit sector, but we also have a lot of people who work in um, nonprofits who are looking to kind of be like, can I get a house or what could residual income or that kind of thing look like for them? What advice would you give to someone who's maybe a little bit more established, um, but they're looking to branch out from their single stream of income? Um, it invested like you think in real estate. Is that, is that what you're asking? Uh, it just, you know, a lot of people are scared to take the very first step, which is just just to just one, you know, um, one thing that I would say is talking to uh, a lender, you know, somebody on the finance side and just finding out because I think a lot of people are scared. They just don't know what they don't know. Hmm. And just because you talk to a lender and fill out an application with them, all that is going to do is give you clarity around 
what you could be qualified for. Um, because one of the worst feelings is when an opportunity is sitting right in front of you and you don't have the ability to jump on it. Mm-hmm. And so having that, for whatever reason, I feel like it's kind of that law of attraction. I think having that just sort of um, that knowledge of what you could do, then all of a sudden, you know, what you focus on expands. So all of a sudden, opportunities will just start appearing out of nowhere, it seems like. Yeah. Um, so number one, getting, you know, just knowing where you stand and knowing those numbers. And then um, absolutely talking to uh, an advisor, you know, if, if you are thinking real estate along that lines, there's so many different avenues of uh, being able to to buy something. I mean, just even the strategy of buying something for a kid going to college and turning around and selling it in four years. And I mean, I can, the numbers are staggering of what kind of an investment that looks like, mm. you know, um, and just what kind of payoff that is in the end. You, you know, your kid's basically going to college. The housing ends up being free, you know, when, when wow. it's all said and done. So, you know, things along that lines, it's, it's a lot of fun. That's really, really cool. Cause yeah, like we, we talked to all, you know, people who are just kind of wanting to start to build a legacy and like a financial legacy and people who are already pretty established. But I love that because I think that first step is the scariest one where it's like, I just don't, I just don't know anything. So that was really, really awesome. I think it's that first step across the board, like getting into real estate, getting into a different type of investment, looking at a possible career change. Like it's Mm -hmm. generally that first step, like a step into the unknown that makes people shrink back a little bit and think, well, maybe where I'm at right now isn't that bad. Yeah. It's comfortable. And I know it. And and basically what Lori was saying was just, you know, get a little bit of education about it. Like get some data, like figure out what what it would even look like to take that step, because just the not knowing, you know, it's like you don't want to be like Indiana Jones stepping out into like this abyss and you're like uh is there a pathway here <laughs> you know you don't have to do that you can you know he i don't understand this he could have thrown the salt or whatever he had in his pocket first and you digress <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry it's just uh that's an image that's burned into my memory so we're gonna go ahead and just wrap up with one big question we asked this to all of our uh, uh guests on the podcast uh because it's such a clarifying question Lori, what does the idea of building a legacy mean to you? Building a legacy. Um, for me, it is all about security. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a pretty well-established family, and then all of a sudden my family was split. And so we went from having things to all of a sudden filing bankruptcy. Um, you know, and that's not, not anything, you know, as a kid, you're, you know, you're just prone to whatever, you know, I had, we had no choice about that. So for me now, it is all about building that wall around my family that nobody can break through. Um, I want to know a thousand percent that nobody can come take my house, come take my car, come, you know, do any of those things. Um, so it's all about having that security around, around me, I think. Um, and then that would unfold to having freedom, you know, beyond that. But for me, it starts with that security factor. That is huge. Yeah, making sure that the legacy itself is protected. And that's, you know, we, we, we all have to think about that, whether that's a philosophical legacy, something you're trying, beliefs you're trying to instill down through generations or financially, 
making sure that there's security passing down. Like it, it has to be protected in some way. Like you have to set up protection. I love that you said like you got multiple walls. Basically, you got layers of walls to make sure that that legacy is secure and uh, able to be passed down and not isn't going to be taken by somebody else. And so those are really, really great thoughts. Thank you again so much for hanging out with us, Lori. This has been super educational for us. I know our listeners are just like, just really enjoying eating all this up too. <laughs> so, well, Lori, where can our listeners find you? Because I'm sure Definitely. that they're going to want to find you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just give the, the main number to my office that would roll over either to my private cell or through uh, my assistant. And that is 763-241-7607. Um, and also on our website, we have just a whole ton of stuff on there, um, you know, uh, all about investing and um, buyer guides and seller guides and just all kinds of things. And that is at millumrealestategroup.com. And um, yeah, I would be uh, always available for second opinions on things too. I just am a big believer in helping out. And so sometimes people just, you know, they feel like they're, I think they're scared to reach out and just ask the question. Um, Absolutely. Just call, uh, email or text and um, really happy to just bounce ideas. So um, listeners, if you're looking for a great real estate agent, Lori is phenomenal, but also she has a huge network. So even if you're not in Minnesota, um, if you're looking for a great agent, she's someone to connect with because she can find you someone who's just fantastic. Um, all of Lori's info will be in the show notes. So take a look there. And Lori, thank you so much again for being on and for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for the next episode where we talk with the president and CEO of a large and successful nonprofit about making the shift from for-profit leadership to nonprofit leadership. Thank you for listening to the Legacy Builders Movement. If you appreciate this content and feel that it's valuable, the best way you could help us is to go to iTunes, subscribe, and while you're there, leave us a rating and review. To learn more about Legacy Builders, go to LegacyBuildersInternational.com. That's LegacyBuildersIntl.com.